UK Motor Talk. Well, hello everyone and thank you for joining us once again. I'm Mike. I'm Jim. Good evening. Good evening. I'm Graham. So guys, what have we been up to since we last spoke? Well, uh, uh, if you want, I'll retell the story of my uh, Volvo failing its MOT this afternoon. But But I haven't heard it the first time, so you go ahead and retell it. I haven't heard it either, so I'd be guessing our listeners haven't, so uh, crack on. Right, well, it's just uh, one of those things. I mean, I, I, I should know enough to check everything and did check everything. And it was a completely clean bill of health, apart from one item, which was caused by me failing to jack the car up and get underneath it. So there's just uh, the inner boot uh, on one of the drive shafts is to be replaced. And when the guy said, well, we we can do it for 100 quid, I don't need the hassle of getting under the car just to do that. Yeah, I'll give you 100 quid. Get on with it. That doesn't sound too bad. How many miles has the Volvo done now? 110. Oh, it's a baby. And here's a top tip. If you're keen on working on your own car, just pay someone else to do it because it's a lot less hassle. It's much easier. And and I'll tell you what, if if you had a pound for uh, moving swiftly on into a, a seamless segue here, if you had a pound for every mile your Volvo had done, you would actually have enough to buy a Mitsubishi Lancer. Because uh, regular <laughs> listeners to the podcast will know, we've, uh, we've been watching the auctions of Mitsubishi's uh, UK car collection, because when they say they're leaving the UK, they really mean they're leaving the UK. They're gone. Packed up. Yep, see you Lock, later. stock and barrel, yeah. This is bloke getting divorced. He's phoned all his mates up and said, right, come and buy everything before the wife nicks it off me, levels of I'm done, I'm out. And, mm. uh, and yeah, the, the, the number one auction that I was watching, and uh, was half tempted to have a bid on for about three minutes until it went beyond my price range, was uh, was lot one, which was the, uh, the Lancer... Evo 6 Tommy Mackinnon edition, uh, £100,100. I mean, that's that's an insane amount of money for that car, that's isn't madness. it? I mean, it's, if, if you're going to buy one, then yes, that's the one to buy. But surely part of its its heritage and its history is it is, you know, that one. It's, it's car number six, it's not car number one. Um, but only done 10,000 miles and the, you know, the, the history and the provenance of it. But can, can you use that? Could you spend 100 grand on it? And could you drive that any way in which the manner it was intended? Or would you just be thinking, it's 100,000 pounds, it's 100,000 pounds, it's 100,000 mm. pounds. It's just, I, I, I can't quite compute that amount of money for a car like that. I mean, lovely, if, if I'd won the Euro Millions last week, then then yes, I'd have probably gone to 101 and bought it and uh, and driven it, but I do hope it gets driven again. Yeah, it would certainly be nice to see it in action somewhere, but uh, I can just imagine the, the, the guy that had bid 100 grand and, and thought that was his, and then somebody stuck another 100 quid on it. Can you imagine <laughs> how furious you would be? Well, I can honestly say I could probably stretch to the auction guide in terms of what I could buy, and I don't think the bank would lend me a pen. So uh, the, the chances of me spending £101,000 on an, an on an old Mitsubishi, unlikely. I appreciate trivialise these things. I say old Mitsubishi because, let's face it, we'd all love to own that. It's cool. But that sort of money, you could buy some serious cars. You could buy s- several serious cars for that. I'd rather buy one that's done 30,000, 40,000 miles and has some change. Then you could use it. I have to say it's a sort of vicarious pleasure, but I've always enjoyed watching auctions where the big players are, are spending vast amounts of money. 
I remember on a Friday at Goodwood sitting, they were selling off various paintings and so on. There was a particularly nice Michael Turner that came up and I was sitting behind somebody who bought it for something like 30 grand. And I sort of said to him, uh, why did you buy that? It was a specific reason. He said, no, it was a bargain. I couldn't resist it. But then this is the guy who um, owns the Dutch National Motor Museum and is one of the wealthiest people in Europe. I won't name him. But, Just uh, Google him, guys. <laughs> but, you know, he could he could drop 30 grand on a painting because we thought it was good value. Well, why not? It's, I don't know. It's, it's an odd thing, though. I mean, art, I don't, uh, I don't understand art in terms of its its value and you know people paying millions and millions of pounds for a painting i I kind of think i'd be just as happy with a reproduction shortly because it's it looks the same and the whole idea of a picture is is how it looks but a car Mm. is is a thing to be driven isn't it so i you know 30 but then 30 gram for a painting it, it does exactly what it says on the tin it's a painting you hang it on the wall and you look at it that's that's what you do with it 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 has one practical purpose, I suppose. The the secondary purpose um, is is to inspire or to ignite or you know to burn the fires of your soul or whatever art does to people. But a uh, you know a car, it's okay. They're they're often pretty to look at or aggressive to look at or whatever it is. But you have to drive them, surely. No, see, uh, there are certain cars I would own as a piece of art and be happy with it. I think there there, there are certain Astons because obviously, as you know, I've got a bent for that kind of thing. But a two fifty. GTO California I could sit there and just look at that because I suspect it's probably nicer to look at than it is to drive in truth um, probably yeah I'm sure take it out as an event but just looking at it that is a beautiful car I could sit there and just happily just have a big garage with glass sides and just a bench and I could just sit there and just look at it and I think I'd be happy then I'll start it up and just listen to it and you've got two in one there you've got a piece of art and a piece of music yeah, there was a there was a house for uh, for sale um, just around the corner from us. Actually, I think I showed it to you, Mike. It was the the one that was there was almost two buildings lashed together. But the the right hand side, as you looked at it, was yes, yes, reasonably yes. abandoned, but a very good what quadruple garage. The left hand side mm. with a house was a house, just one bed, and, yes, you uh, did bathroom show me that. and lounge downstairs. And I thought, actually, and I think it was sold on the basis of you know there's planning permission to to build next door into a house and whatever else. But I actually thought, no, what I'd do with that, to be fair, is is put a bedroom in upstairs, but put a bit of a glass floor in or something like mm. that and do the garage area up really nicely or maybe have the glass floor area upstairs as a lounge. You could just sit there of an evening looking down on your car. Something like that would be nice. You've walked one-way glass because that would be terrifying when you got out of bed in the morning and you just walk out of the bathroom to go and get changed and someone's downstairs in your garage. Just looking up at you and seeing that. But it was, uh, it was odd, but I couldn't quite work out how it was £300,000 for a, what was in essence a one-bed house. It seemed like a lot of money to me, but if you've got half a million to throw around, then yeah, buy a one-bed house and a Y-Ridge Mitsubishi to go downstairs. It used to be very fashionable for Formula One drivers to uh, take their championship-winning car and hang it on the wall of their palatial mansion, but I'm not sure that's still uh, as fashionable as it once was, but uh, certainly through the 70s and 80s, a lot of F1 drivers had cars hanging on their walls. It was not only the status of the car, was the fact that you could afford a triple-height room to put it in. <laughs> See, I think that, that, in a weird way, I kind of get, because that, that car, and, unless it has an horrifically expensive engine and gearbox and, and a team of people to keep it running, 
that's that's not going to be used as a Formula One car anymore, is it? So actually, you can't at, at go that for stage, black, yeah, can you? Yeah, take the engine out of it. You can't use it for anything else. You know, you can't really use it for for track days uh, unless you've got a team of people around. <laughs> it. But then, if if you're an F1 world champion, you've you've driven a lot of F1 cars. So actually, at that stage, yeah, is it a piece of art that you can hang on the wall? But but I, I don't know if that was me. I'd I'd want it on the floor so I could sit in it and make brum brum noises. But I'd be guessing <laughs> Formula One drivers. Have, you know, I'd be guessing Kimmy when he gets home doesn't feel the urge to sit in one of his old Ferraris and make brum brum noises or boah boah noises. He's, he's probably over it by then. I'd be guessing. It used to be a club that had a, an old Lotus. I'm sure it was an old Lotus Formula One kind. I mean, old old on the ceiling because it always used to be the challenge of people on stag nights to try and see if they could strap the <laughs> strap the stag into the car upside down on the ceiling. I'm sure that was the case. I have to look it up. If I find that, I will post that up. So you can have a look at it yourself. So have a look on our, our Facebook page and it'll be there if I can find the upside down car. Are you sure that was the thing or was it just on, on a night out where some bloke who looked a bit dodgy said, here, do you fancy taking one of these? And you thought, hmm, Skittles, and you gobbled down a handful. Or... Oh, those special Skittles, yes. Mm. They're so colourful. Yeah. Per- uh, I like yeah, the smiley the faces on them. Like hearts. Yeah, they're the ones. That's the what. Yeah, 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 I remember that now. Yeah, yeah. There used to be... Um, there used to be a club in Worthing, actually, of all places. They had a Mark One Escort bursting out the wall, I seem to remember. That's quite cool. So in the Mitsubishi auction, did anyone see how much my Desert Warrior went for? Because that's the one that I was interested in. I missed it. £30,100. There was an awful lot of £100 editions. I reckon that's OK. £30,100 for that. Somebody with very deep pockets decided to add a hundred quid to everything, basically, or so it would seem. Because the, <laughs> the Starion went for twenty thousand, twenty-one thousand one hundred, and the Mitsubishi three thousand GT for twenty-four thousand one hundred. A lot of money for one of those. I remember when they weren't a lot of money. Full stop. No, the the three thousand GT. I think I mentioned uh, the, there used to be a very tasty one in Lewis, which really looked well after. Um, and now I see it's uh, really well covered up. Still not garaged, but it's well wrapped up, so maybe somebody's uh, paid attention to the price of that one and decided to protect theirs a little better than they used to. Very good car in its day, very high-tech, affordable high-tech. Right, JDM guys, tell me, 3000 GT, is there a cult following? Have I missed something? Because we need to know, and I wonder if I have, so let us know. Speaking of cult JDM cars, the next thing on my list to do, and I think I'll be doing this Friday night, is taking uh, the interior out of a Supra, because uh, a friend of mine who owns it, he's, um, well, there's more than one of them in the country, obviously, but that owns this particular example, managed to put some of the little screws that hold the steering wheel in, the little bolts, on top of the dashboard and then lost them into the heater, uh, which is really, really <laughs> awkward. The, the Supra, as you will probably know, sort of has a, a, a cockpit, plane-type cockpit, where it... it it cocoons you whilst you're sat in the driver's seat. So you have to take everything apart to get it out. Uh, so that's, <laughs> for the sake of two bolts, we've got to take the entire dashboard out. I think we, we might do the heater matrix whilst we're there because you've got to, you might as well anyway. If they're down the heater vent, would a, an endoscope and a magnet not do the job? Yeah, See, that was my Under normal thinking. circumstances, yes, but these are titanium. Ah, would an endoscope oh. and a one of those grabber... Total Recall, get the weird flashy bulb out of your skull type grabber tools, do the job. I do have one of those, the, the sort of like, the claw, you know, the, <laughs> where you can put it in and it, it picks stuff up. Um, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's going to have to come out. 
And it seems like a lot of work for that. But there you go. One of those things. And who doesn't like working on a Supra? A very cool car made of incredibly brittle plastic. So there is always that, that air of jeopardy whenever you I, take I would, anything for the, apart. For the sake of many hours of taking it apart, I would try an endoscope first just to see if you can, uh, if you can do it that way. Mm. Yeah, it's probably not a bad shout. I'll, um, I shall borrow Boris, Boris Scope, as we named him from work, and, yes. uh, and stick it down the hole and have a look and see what we can find. Something that I have seen since we last spoke and something that I instantly wanted and have absolutely no use for. Did you guys see this thing called the Wild One Max? Is that the uh, the Tamiya? It's not full size, is it? It's like eight tenths replica. Yes. Yeah. yeah, there's a, a little car company made Bugattis and DB5s and things, which it looks like very nice posh toys, well out of uh, my reach. That was 27, 30 grand or so. What they have created, though, and you may remember this off of the 80s, is a bigger version, scaled-up version, of the Tamiya RC car, the little buggy, called the Wild One, which I think was from 85, 1985. The black um, sort of off-road buggy, single seat, spot lamps either side of the windscreen. You'll, you'll recognise it the moment you see it. So cool. As in a little electric buggy. The Wild One, I was, I was massively into... Tamiya radio control cars when I was a kid, as I think most of us were, really. Yes. Uh, and I was sorting out the bits out of my parents' loft, actually, and found all the boxes for the old ones. So I've uh, tucked those safely in uh, in my loft at home now. It looks fantastic, this thing. I mean, my, my first couple of cars were uh, an Escort, uh, a Repsol Escort RS Cosworth rally car. So uh, jealous And then about I got a, a Dirt Thrasher as well. Um, so, mm. I mean, fairly similar chassis, just different suspension arms and, and body shells and bits and pieces. I, I think I would pay a lot of money for a full-size dirt thrasher. That would be very cool indeed. This is sort of a lot of money, but sort of not by comparison, because it's £6,000 plus the VAT. It's a lot cheaper than a Y-Ridge Mitsubishi, isn't it? It is. It is very good value compared to that. In so fact. it's all relative. Yeah. Yes. So it's, it's th- about three and a half metres long, about 1.8 metres wide. So it's big. It's pretty big and it's electric. So like the Tamiya cars, it's also electric. Uh, it can do about 30 miles an hour. So again, about what the Tamiya cars would do. And it will run for about 25 miles. However, you can expand it to make it go faster and make it go further and with extra battery packs. And you can buy a road legal kit so you can drive it around. I just love the idea of having this as, a, as an actual car. It's hugely impractical. It's one seater, no windscreen. That's a problem if you only drive all the time. But just imagine, you would you would actually just be a massive kid, wouldn't you? Well, I'm uh, I'm just busily searching through now and seeing if there's a, a plot of land for sale anywhere around here at the moment, and I'm just trying to work out if uh, if a hundred thousand and one hundred pounds would buy you a half decent plot of land uh, and enough of these Tamiya Wild One maxes to uh, to get all your mates together and just go off-road racing in them because that's probably more fun for a hundred grand isn't it yeah well technically this thing isn't a car it's a quadricycle a bit like a twizzy or the ami which are, are both cars that, that are uh, well the ami is something we're interested in driving but certainly the twizzy is, is good fun to drive if totally impractical in reality because you have to pay extra for doors then you have to put your hand in a little flap to open the door saw a twizzy the other day being driven without doors which was Usually people seem to go for the doors options, not that I've ever seen many of them, but this particular one was um, a naked Twizzy with no doors. I've driven quite a few Twizzies in my time. We had an, a naked Twizzy with no doors. And if you if you have the doors, you can only open them from the inside, and they're, they're sort of like scissor doors. 
But if you want to remain dry, you then have to also spec windows. And these are kind of like, you know, the invalid carriages that have those covers that go over the top. And that's like <laughs> these plastic flimsy windows. But you have to sort of reach through the gap to open the door. So whatever happens, you sort of lean over the window, which is wet, and then get wet opening the door. So you might as well just not bother with them at all. Just just have it open. But honestly, I've never had so many people stop and stare at me driving anything like I have in the Twizy, which is great, I should imagine, if you have a good side profile. But if you've got a bit of a beer belly, it's not the most flattering thing to sit there with a seatbelt and no side, no side doors or side windows because you do just look very fat. But it is good fun. The more and more I look at this, the more and more fun I think it is. But it's, uh, I think it's, uh, I think that's why I like the aerial Nomad so much because mm. it just looks like a radio control car, especially with the massive yes. aerial stuck out the top of it, which I'm fairly certain serves no other purpose other than to go, oh, it looks like a radio control car. Definitely, because yeah, it doesn't have a radio in it. So I don't understand why it has such a big aerial in it, other than to go, oh, look at that, or is it to find you if you disappeared into a a bog somewhere, I'm not sure. <laughs> so I think the Nomad looks better than the Atom. I don't know if you'll agree with this. No. no I said, I, I, there's something just really cool about it. It looks like it should be being driven by Action Man with eagle eyes. Yeah, it's definitely that, that radio control car appeal, but I think it's, uh, it's a great thing. But to be fair, if that had enough range to get you to and from work, well, you'd smoke that to work and back, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, well, the Wild One Max does have enough range. So there you go. If you want one, you can express your interest and pay a refundable deposit of £100 um, at the Wild One Max website, which is something like wildonemax.com. It's worth it's worth going and having a look just for your interest, if nothing else, because I want one, and I want one as a kit so I can build it myself. Seems a bizarre choice of deposit, 100 quid. Yeah. That's all it is. I also like the fact that there's uh, various hop-up options as well, because I seem to remember spending... I think it was about 120, 130 quid on my original Escort Tamiya radio control car. And then probably four times as much as that again on upgrades to get it to go yep. faster and look better and go round corners better. And they, they've said there's a, a good range of hop-ups already available and they'll, they'll do more as they go along. So that, that could be quite a nice tinkering thing that you can have in your garage for years and then pass it on to your kids. You put the little motor back into it to, uh, to get them started and off you go. So there we are. But buy that as an investment. I, I think if I had some land, I would be so tempted. I would be so tempted. It, looks, it just looks like so much fun. Well, can we link from uh, radio-controlled cars to latest government suggestion by Minister of Transport that uh, we're going to introduce legislation for the use of semi-autonomous cars on uh, on Britain's roads, and that that will probably go through on the next round of whenever they finally get back to Parliament and stop having holidays. But, uh, you know, it has an incredible lot of limitations. The idea, I think, is that uh, you know, autonomous cars it's the technology of the future. Yes, it probably is, and we're probably not ready for it just yet. But I was particularly amused by the 37-mile-an-hour limit, which will go into the legislation. I'm rather reminded of the, uh, not that I was around for it the first time, but the requirement for a man with a red flag in front of your car uh, and the restriction to go at five miles an hour. Maybe these days it'll be a motorcycle with a red flag on it. But can you imagine taking a, a, a vehicle that is limited to 37 miles an hour in fully autonomous mode, admittedly. Um, can you imagine taking that on the motorway while all the trucks are doing 55? 
Uh, well, no, I think to to do thirty seven on a motorway is uh, is certainly dangerous if if everything's flowing freely. It's certainly dangerous driving at the very least. Yep, I would agree. If you can't do fifty five miles an hour, then uh, then you shouldn't be on the motorway really. But uh, I uh, yeah, the the speed limit of of thirty seven doesn't quite make sense no, to me. Make it seventy. Quite if so. It's seventy miles an hour, and and we've all seen with uh, radar guided cruise control and lane keeping assist. Uh, you know, the motorway is, generally speaking, a bit neater and tidier than a normal road, as in there tends to be fewer leaves next to it and fewer rubbish and bits and pieces like that. They're generally quite clean and quite clear, so the cameras are able to see the white lines a lot better and, and see the cars in front of them, and it's all a bit more predictable because even through the, the sweepiest of sweepy bends on uh, on a twisty motorway, it's all very gentle, and you certainly don't need one half way, a turn of log. Yeah, it's one way. You don't need half a turn of log at any point on a motorway unless something's gone a bit wrong. So surely the, the best place for this autonomous technology is at 70 miles an hour. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is this is my argument. If you think that the, the technology is ready, then introduce it and don't put artificial restrictions on it. If it isn't ready then don't introduce it at all, which is why I think the, the, the whole idea is a little bit crazy. And, and 37 miles an hour is an unsafe speed on a road or a motorway, with, without a doubt. If you can't keep up with the, with the existing traffic flows, you're a mobile hazard. Well, this, this is true. I mean, surely they're not suggesting that these cars are going to run along at 37 miles an hour. They're surely the point of the autonomous bit of it is that if you're stuck in a traffic jam, it does that bit for you, I'm guessing. They're not going to suggest that they they trundle along at thirty seven on a motorway because that just wouldn't make any sense at all. So when you, we've already have various levels of autonomy in cars, and depending which level level one, two, three, four, whatever you want to talk about, cars are capable of doing radar guided cruise control. They've been doing that for years. Lane centering mm. assist or whatever you want to call it these days, it's pretty standard. I've, I've, I've driven down a, a dual carriageway with some twisty roads and bits and pieces, and it uh, it goes from sixty to seventy to 60 again and, and then 50 for a bit and it was quite happy at speeding up and slowing down with the cars in front and it kept me in the centre of the lane. All you had to do was just be holding the steering wheel, you know, whether that was loosely or whatever, as long as you were applying some sort of uh, pressure to it. And all this really means is if you're stuck in traffic and the car's just inching along and inching along or whatever, up to your 37 miles an hour, it will do that bit of the driving for you where you're likely to crash into the car in front because that's when people crash, generally speaking, is the moving off and slowing down bits rather than just wanging into the back of someone at, at 40, 50 miles an hour. And then when it gets to that speed, it will do like most cars do when, when they need you to do something. It will flash up saying driver intervene and then you'll you'll carry on your merry way. It will tell you to put your hands on the steering wheel and pay attention, stop picking your nose. I'm in favour of the of the, the technology. I'm not arguing against that. I think it's just an unfortunate halfway house to the introduction of that technology. If you yeah. believe it's right and it's now is the right time, then introduce it, but don't introduce it with artificial restrictions, like your man mm. with the red flag. It's the same thing, and and I don't think our thinking has progressed that much on it. But unfortunately. I think I think stepping stones are, are probably a good idea. You know, I remember my my dad being quite anti cruise control because it meant mm. you weren't mm. paying attention whereas now cruise control is is on every car or speed limiter is on every car so you use one or two i tend to rarely use cruise control but do use the speed limiter all these driver aids and driver assistance is it's slowly over a number of years moved from you know 
ABS. Oh no, I don't need ABS. I know how to brake and I know how to brake properly and that's fine. But now it's standard and, and nobody thinks about it. So it's it, I think it's just easing people into it slowly. And the, the first time that you do drive a car that, that drives itself, in inverted commas, it's a bit of an unnerving feeling. But once you've done it a few times, you, you learn to trust it and that's it. It's a bit like the, the self-park feature. It's very peculiar the first time you do it and the steering wheel's twiddling away and, and it's moving backwards and it stops when it wants to stop. But once you, you learn to trust it and it works, then it's okay. <laughs> Well, what else have we had in the uh, in the last week or so? We've had uh, a Grand Prix again. Yeah. We returned to the uh, the Portugal circuit, or the Circuit International Delgave, or whatever they call it. Um, Portimao. It, uh, it was Portugal. Portimao, that's the one. And uh, it was, uh, I think, the, the weather was a talking point. It looked very nice and pretty on the cameras, but it was quite breezy by all accounts, and that was uh, chucking a few drivers off. But I think it was, uh, it was another good uh, close race between Max and Lewis for, for a period, uh, I think a couple of errors cost Lewis the lead or be fighting at the front initially, but he soon fought his way back through. And uh, track limits again being an issue, but I thought that was, uh, that was overall an entertaining race. Uh, I'm just a little bit worried about Valtteri, to be honest, because I heard uh, a murmurings from an anonymous Mercedes engineer who basically said Valtteri's time is, is pretty much done. If he doesn't get on with it sharpish, then... Um, there'll be a substitution before the end of the season. He did get a hurry up from Toto, didn't he? Yeah, I couldn't quite work out if that, was a, if that was a motivational G-up. Well, or that it, was, was, a... <laughs> it, was, it was an implied... Well, it was a motivational, but with an implied threat, I think. So, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, the, hi- the highlight for me was Lewis overtaking Beltieri. You know, that was sort of hyper-warp speed. It was done so quickly. Just a, a stunning move on his part. Rest of the yeah, race, I don't know if uh, so, so. if Valtteri's head had dropped at that point, but it's uh, it's it's one of those things with Valtteri. He, you know, he can do it, and you know, on his day or on his time or on that lap or one lap or that race, he he's he's a match for Lewis. And I don't think anyone's run him as close in in qualifying, uh, particularly in in their time as teammates. You know, if you look at the bare statistics in terms yeah, of points so. or wins or fastest laps or whatever else Lewis has had pretty much the measure of all his teammates apart from uh, apart from Jensen Button over the the course of their time or one season and Nico Rosberg over the season in uh, when Nico won the championship in 2016 but it's that Lewis just seems to have that relentless level of always being at 101% all the time and then his teammates seem to get to 102% occasionally but 98% most of the time. So it's just that, you know, on his day he could match him, but it's not his day that often. So I don't know if uh, if uh, if Valtteri does depart before the end of the season, then um, I suppose the, the number one or the obvious choice for that seat would be George Russell. Um, but we saw how well he did in Bahrain, so it would, be, it would be interesting and entertaining to see him go up against Lewis in the same car. I think also probably make... Mercedes life a bit easier because it's it's a very tight battle between Mercedes and Red Bull uh, at what stage do Mercedes call it for the championship and say to Bottas you need to get out of the way well they didn't really need to say it on the weekend um, but at what point do they say no team orders that's it you're number two if you brought George Russell in even for the next race you'd have to say well he's too far behind on points already so for the rest of the season you're number two and, and we'll see what happens next year uh, would actually Politically and driver-wise, would that make their lives easier? 
Uh, well, I'm it, not it, sure. Valtieri's on a on a uh, contract that ends at the end of this season anyway. I think that's common knowledge. I I really can't see a scenario where Mercedes dispose of his services before the end of the season. It's just it's not the way I think they do they do business. It's it's they wouldn't see that I think as a as an ethical way of going about their business. They'll they'll kick him maybe. Uh, they'll prod him in private and prod him a bit in public, but. I think uh, George Russell won't get into that seat till next season, and then I think he's probably a shoe in. But I don't know if uh, if you're sat there as it's, it's never been an issue for Mercedes over the last six years. The the number two driver, whoever's in the second seat, whichever way you want to call it, is has always had a car underneath them good enough to come second or third most of the time to come second. So if he has an off day. You know, instead of being seven tenths away from from the Red Bulls, he's three tenths away from the Red Bulls, but he's he's still above the Red Bulls. The you know, Checo seems to be getting on with that Red Bull car a lot quicker than uh, than some of the others. If True. they look at the situation and Valtteri is going to cost Mercedes the constructors' championships, then actually you've got a very different conversation because if you can plop George Russell into the car, and we saw how well he did, it's that you know. If we have Valtteri in the car, we're not going to win the Constructors' Championship. If we have George Russell in the car, we might win the Constructors' Championship. Actually, then that that becomes a different conversation because uh, the stronger and stronger Checo gets, and and after three races in the car, he's had you know he's had qualified Max once. Um, okay, track limits or a mistake that Max made or whatever else, but it doesn't matter. He's still out qualified Max. You know, does does that just push you more towards? more towards Russell. I think you're eliding two things together, Jim. You know, I, I I certainly think Checo's doing very, very well and I think he will become a player as far as the championship goes. But uh, I think that they will stick unless Valtteri suddenly loses it completely, I think that they will just stick with him for the rest of the season because all the time he's scoring seconds, thirds, fourths, even fifths then he's making a major difference to the to the championship standards, the constructors' championship, and ultimately that's what matters to any any car maker who's in Formula One, the constructors' championship, not the drivers. Quite right too. Well, it'll be interesting to find out. We've got uh, a couple of bits coming up over well the the course of the season. Uh, they've announced the the sprint race or sprint qualifying format. Not not quite sure how that's going to work out, but I. Ultimately, I think we just need to uh, we need to try it and we need to uh, to see what happens. I'm sure they'll uh, they'll run it for two or three rounds as uh, as they've planned. And if uh, if the format needs tweaking, then they'll tweak it. But just as dropping George Russell into the Mercedes for the next race would be entertaining, exciting, and interesting, then I think the sprint race format is going to be interesting and entertaining and exciting. And, and hey, let's try it and see what happens. What's the uh, what's the worst that could happen? We're now into our first back to back, so it was an odd start to the uh, the season one race and then a three week gap and then another race but we've uh, we've got Barcelona coming up uh, this weekend and then Monaco in the not too distant uh, future we all, I think we all watched a bit of the historic F1 cars racing around Monaco a bit of a a dry run to see if uh, a Formula One type event could be held there and if if you haven't watched any of the footage of this have a look on on YouTube it was all broadcast live all day and uh, and there's highlights and reruns but to see you know John Alesi at the wheel of Nicky Lauda's Ferrari tearing around Monaco was, uh, yeah. was quite spectacular. And he, he certainly didn't hold back. It wasn't a, uh, oh, 
this this Mitsubishi Lancer cost me a hundred thousand pounds. I better not drive it too fast. <laughs> he he was going hell for leather. He was he was full John Lacey, as you would expect. Ended up crashing, um, unfortunately. But hey, at least he was trying and he was entertaining. Monaco will uh, will be an interesting uh, challenge for some of the rookies. But I think uh, a couple of quid on a safety car would be a good bet for that one. Oh, I think so. Uh, the, the the likelihood of a safety car is very high. But yes. Uh, I can imagine that there's a certain Russian gentleman who seems to hit anything uh, that he has the opportunity to hit. Uh, certainly, I think he's going to tangle with the barriers on every session, probably. Uh, if one is to echo Kimi's observations, perhaps he shouldn't be there in the first place. But then, you know, he brings an awful lot of money to play with. But uh, Monaco is always an absolute joy to watch. Uh, and the the lower the camera angle the better it is uh, as far as I'm concerned because Monaco is just so zoomy it really is amazing. It's maybe not the uh, the best race to watch in inverted commas but there is something spectacular about watching Formula One cars go uh, go flat out through there so I mean if, if they're going to change things up and, and have sprint races and sprint qualifying you know maybe, maybe change Monaco's status maybe have it as a more of a Goodwood festival of speed hill climb one run, one car, one lap, you know, a, a time shootout type thing. Um, run it over a few days and, and the cars get quicker and quicker and it's just fastest lap time of the weekend wins or, or make it a non-championship round or something like that. Or, I don't know, if, if we've had historic cars around there, let them run historic liveries or, or let them run different drivers. You know, Kibitza's back in the, uh, in the Alpha for testing. Uh, any minute now so you know let let them have a shuffle round and, and put run three cars if you want so you could see Robert Kubica back in the car around Monaco or bring a couple of drivers out of retirement drivers who've just left you know to see Fisichella in a Ferrari around Monaco would be quite special so why not something like that if we're mixing things up with sprint races yeah I'm all in favour I'd love to see more racing uh, and uh, I, I, I think the sprint race idea is is certainly a worthwhile experiment and it's already been suggested that, you know, the three they're going to run this year, uh, they'll probably run at least half a dozen in 2022 if the three this year. And, you know, and they'll gradually ramp up. Uh, and I think if you've uh, ever wanted to see more racing, and the promoters certainly want to see more racing because they can make some more money, it just soaks more money into the sport. Yeah, yeah I'm all in favour. Let's give it a go. But I think we've uh, we've come up with some good ideas. So, uh, Ross Braun, if you're listening, don't call or email. Just post us probably half a dozen tickets, I think, to the Monaco Grand Prix with uh, with flights and accommodation. And we'll come over and we'll have a chat with you about all of our ideas. And, uh, and you can take them and, and run with them and look after us. We spent a good chunk of the beginning of the podcast talking about an outgoing rallying manufacturer from uh, from the mid-90s so on to another rallying manufacturer from the mid-90s uh, on from Mitsubishi on to Subaru I think they've uh, they've had a bit yes. of a, a bit of news with their dealer network this week they have they? and that's because we speculated that with a thousand sales across Europe that they might be going the same way as Mitsubishi and they wrote us a furious press release saying no we are strengthening our position in the UK UK Motor Talk are most wrong about this I think I unwittingly um, suggested that Subaru might well be exiting the market as well because their sales are well down they clearly don't see it in quite the same way because they've just appointed 10 new dealerships so uh, good for them and they're hanging in there and there will be a dealership turning up near you 
or maybe in the same county in the not too distant future. So, um, Subaru, we we don't go so far as apologising, do we? But nevertheless, they disagree with what we say, and, and there we are. We have a, a number of dealerships, and that's by number is literally a number of dealerships that are, are flooding to our shores. They've put their money in to uh, ensure that we were wrong and they were right, and they're going to stick with the UK market. There you go. So, what do we know? We're only experts in our field. Subaru, however, um, will undoubtedly prove us wrong with a... Uh, a wide range of new and exciting four-wheel drive and electric vehicles, which um, which presumably will be coming at some point uh, after you can't make agri yob style flat fours, I guess. In the last week, I had a week off, so I took a little wander up to Caterham Cars of Gatwick, had a little uh, poke around and see what they had up there. Uh, they had some very nice cars in, but most of which were sold, unfortunately. The good news is I do fit in one. It has to be the, the S5 chassis, which is a little bit wider. Um, I'm going to go with the excuse my feet are too big, uh, which is actually true. In, in an S3, a narrower chassis, I can press two pedals at once. Uh, but I can't press a single pedal, so you have to pick two pedals that are next to each other and press them at the same time and hope for the best. So it made heel and towing very easy, but um, yeah, it would have made pulling away from traffic lights a bit technical. Um, but no, in, uh, in an S5, there's a little bit more room for my size 11 feet, so uh, I've uh, I've lined up a test drive for next weekend in a in an S5 with uh, with some lowered floors as well, just to stop my head poking out of the uh, the top of the windscreen. Uh, so I'm off for a drive in a Caterham. So fingers crossed, the weather's nice. It looks like a, quite an entertaining test drive and the way they do it you're uh, you're in the car on your own uh, covid social distancing this that and the other but they do have a pace car which uh, which drives in front of you but that that kind of reminds me of our last track day at brands hatch where you had to go out and follow the pace car but uh, nobody had their tires warmed up and the pace car had already got his eye in so pretty much everybody nearly went off on the last corner trying to keep up with the pace car but we'll uh, we'll see how that goes so i'll uh, i'll talk about my drive in a caterham seven next time and we've literally had some comments asking me, what the hell am I doing with the onion? Because I said before that I was doing something with the onion, and I have been doing things. So I will tell you what those things are the next time we speak. Graham is looking desperately at me, hoping for some wine. So I guess it's time that we stop this podcast and look forward to speaking to you later. So from me, Mike, goodbye. From me, Jim, it's goodbye. And it's good to see that we're allowed out and about a bit more, so uh, drive safe. And it's good night from me, Graham, and uh, take good care of yourselves. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.